Amen. Yeah, all right. It's okay to clap after videos. How's everybody doing this morning? You good? All right. Uh, does anybody else have to watch that video? Does anyone else struggle with uh, work-life balance, uh, home life versus work life? Is it just me? No, it's kind of hard, right? Especially, you know, I don't know, you, you, you struggle when you're single with that and then go get married and then go get married and have a couple kids. And then a couple of you are trying to figure out two different careers in the home and it's hard. And here's what we've learned, okay? Uh, that the balance between your work life and your home life, is balance even the right word? Probably not, maybe rhythm, okay? Well, however that works, it's not really a problem to be solved. You're not going to solve it, okay? It's a tension to be managed because what happens if you just decide, I'm not going to work anymore, well, you, you don't really have anyone to, you, don't, you can't provide for your family, right? Well, what happens if you decide, I'm going to just pursue my career at all costs? You wake up one day and you're providing for people that you don't even know, okay? So here's our heart for you. We want you, whether you're watching online or you're in the lobby or you're in here, welcome. Here's our heart, okay? Some of you are new, others you've been around for a long time. We want to be a church for Monday, okay? So today is... Sunday, okay? Monday is tomorrow, okay? What does that mean? It means, well, we have you for like one hour, okay? And this is an important hour, and we want it to be the marketplace for the soul, and we really want to just equip you and edify you and whatever else we want to do here. Uh, but we want to do it for the other 167 hours of your week. Now, I heard a story one time of a, a true story of a pastor. He was an associate pastor. His dad was a senior pastor. And he said, you know, his dad was like, you can preach for me, okay? And he was learning how to preach. And the first time you preach, you're nervous and you're working on all these different things. And he said, I was doing the Greek words and I was doing the, what did the context mean? And I was doing all the backgrounds. And he said, I preached the message. And afterwards I asked my dad, how did it go? He says, dad said, great job. Next time, would you preach it to us who live in the real world? <laughs> and I want you to know that that's our commitment here. We want, we want to so preach and teach that it shows up the rest of the week in, you know, at your kitchen table or at your cubicle, okay? So that, that's our heart. And let me say it maybe one other way is that um, we want to help you and you'll have to get in a community group for this to happen. So that means you'll have to go through a weekender. And that's why we lovingly say, if you're not in a community group, you're not going to get everything you could out of this church. We want to help you discover your personal calling so that you can have a vocational impact. Okay. Now, when I say personal calling, I know you're supposed to glorify God. Okay. I get it. I know you're supposed to make disciples. I know you're supposed to evangelize, but like, how do you do that? Like based on your personality and your struggles and your background and your job and your neighborhood and your life stage and your lifestyle, well, we wanna help you discover that. And then we wanna empower you to, to have a vocational impact. See, what happened during the Reformation, I won't, it's a, this isn't a history lesson, but the Reformation was this time when Martin Luther, he was a monk, and there was a great discovery made. It was called the priesthood of all believers. It was really a rediscovery. And the whole idea of the priesthood of all believers is, oh my goodness, I don't have to go to a priest, I can go directly to God. I can have a personal relationship with God. Unbelievable discovery, okay? Uh, the pre and we all, you know, every Christian now believes that and understands that. We want to move from the priesthood of all believers, I hope you get that, to the pastorhood of all believers, which is that you see yourself as a spiritual leader where you live, learn, work, and play. And we want you to know that we are behind you, just like you heard Edward say in that video. Through all of the difficulties, through all of the fear, through all of the tensions. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into James, because this whole series is about faith in real life, and faith in real life means your work in real life and your home in real life and all the tensions there. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for videos like that that just talk about the tension that each of us feel. And we feel it often depending on the demands of our job. Some of it, we just feel it a lot in certain seasons. Some of our jobs are very seasonal. Sometimes the work, home, life, tension, rhythm, balance depends a lot on the condition of our marriage. And there are times when, because of the condition of our marriage, we have to work a lot less and we have to be home a lot more. Sometimes it, it depends on the age and stage of our children. So we pray the prayer that James asked us to pray in James 1.5, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. And I, I just pray that everybody here would discover in community what is their personal calling. What did you uniquely put them on earth to do? And how can they have a vocational impact where they live, learn, work, and play? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, type two, turn to uh, James chapter four. If you're new, this is what we do. We've been walking through books of the Bible and uh, we're in James chapter four, verses one through 12. I'm gonna meet you there in just one minute. And, and what's interesting is if you were here last week or if you go back, you don't have to, but if you go back to the last verse in chapter three, 
chapter three, verse 18, he's talking about peace. He says peace three times, like peace or peaceable, okay? And then in chapter four, he talks about war. Are you ready to talk about war for 40 minutes? I'm not sure if you are, okay? We're gonna talk about war for 40 minutes. Uh, and what's interesting is a lot of times people will say things like, we need to get back to the early church. You ever heard that? I know what people mean when they say that. I've said it, okay? I get it. Here's what people mean when they say that. Acts chapter two. We need to get back to the early church. I, you mean koinonia, that's a Greek word. That means the fellowship. I get it. You mean the generosity. I get it. You mean the sacrificial spirit. I get it. You mean the kind of sharing bread and being in each other's homes. Great, great. Or when people say we gotta get back to the early church, here's what they mean. The missional kind of endeavors of the apostle Paul. We need to get back to that. And to that we say amen. The willingness to suffer. Okay, I get it, I get it. But if you go back to the early church, they're just as bad as us, okay? In fact, this may surprise you, okay? We're gonna see this in James chapter four today. Christians used to quarrel with one another. Can you believe that? Christians used to fight. Christians used to have church splits and splants. Do you know what a splant is? When you split, but one group goes and plants, okay? We call that the church world a splant. Well, what I'm gonna do to you today is I'm gonna read you all 12 verses and you're gonna see four wars. And these are the four wars that you, you're, they're just happening. They're happening all the time and you're gonna have to decide, are you going to fight in these wars? Okay, so let's look at this. This is uh, James chapter four, verses one through 12. Here's what it says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights? So we move from peace to fights. Among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Some of you go, this sounds like my marriage. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse three, you ask and you do not receive. Now he moves on to prayer because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, yikes. Now God often will use hard words to create soft people, but he's using hard and harsh language here. You adulterous people, verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Now here's some encouragement. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, get ready in verses seven through 10 or 10 commandments. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Let's go back to verse one. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Big idea for this text, big idea for this sermon is life is war, you better start fighting, right? Now, I'm not saying war is a good thing, okay? I don't have time to get into it, but Christians historically, I mean, you can Google this. There's this thing called just war theory, which really smart Christians over the last 2,000 years have tried to say, like, what justifies in a situation in which a nation can go to war? Okay, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is that wars do define nations and they do define generations. What is happening in Ukraine and Russia? We're not all sure, okay? But we do know this, that the war in Ukraine is going to define Ukraine. Like how they do and how they fight and what, okay, right? and we know this, that it defines a nation, but it certainly defines a generation, right? World War I, they're all dead, but they define a generation. World War II, we call them the greatest generation. Many of us, uh, I had an uncle who the Vietnam War defined his whole life. I can't even get into it. For some of you, it's like, man, you know family, you had friends, you have people, and it's like 20 years in the Middle East, yikes. So wars, wars define you. Now wars do a lot of, there's a lot of horrible things that happen with war, but let me tell you what war does because this is why you need to wake up to there's a war inside of you, which we'll get to is that what wars do is they do wake us up. Like you have a war and all of a sudden, like you know what's really important. Like all of a sudden, like I understand priorities. All of a sudden, life and death are real. Do you know what most innovation happens during wartime? It's like, well, we better figure this out. Do you know that, you ever see Band of Brothers? It's like, what does war do? It's like, well, let's stop fighting with each other. Like let's, this nation needs to get together because we've got something, we've got something, there's a real enemy. Now we know who the enemy is. 
And so what I hope happens today is that you'll understand that there are four wars that you have to fight. The first war you see in verse one is it's the war within you. Okay, do you see three words in verse one? He says quarrels, he says fights, and he says wars. Let's talk about them. Quarrel is the tip of the iceberg, okay? Quarrel is like an incident with your wife at the kitchen table, and you're like, why are we fighting about this? Right, has that ever happened? Yes, right? <laughs> you're, 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 arguing with, you fight, you know, you're arguing with your wife, and I don't know, you're arguing about the kids, right? Because you always argue about the kids, okay? But it's kind of a little quarrel, and it's about you know, whether they should watch something or they can go to the sleepover. Who knows what it's about, okay? You're fighting about it. That's a quarrel. It happens like one time, okay? And you're like, well, that was weird. And, but then you start realizing, wait, we quarrel all the time about our kids. That's because underneath the quarrel is a fight. It's like, well, we just can't agree on the kids' stuff. Like, we've been fighting about their education. We've been fighting about, like, how to raise them. We've been fighting about what, what, what that we should do with school. We, we, we just fight about the kids all the time. The quarrel is part of, a, of the fight. But then here's the, here's the deep idea. Here's the uniquely Christian idea. If you look in verse one, he says, well, why are there quarrels and why are there fights? Is it not a war within? So here's the big idea that the main problem in life, according to the Bible and according to this verse, it's very clear, is you. You are the, 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 the where, where, if you had to locate the problem, right? It's like, okay, where is the problem? It's you, it's me. Like, you've been a part of every bad decision you've ever done, right? No one has lied to you more than you. And it's really helpful to locate the problem within, right? Because we don't want to do that, right? right? We want to say, the problem is my spouse. The problem is my boss. The problem is my kids. The problem is my in-laws. The problem is the government. It's like you wish somebody else, it was the problem. It was their problem. Now, you might want to ask this question. Why do you want the problem to be someone else's? Well, whenever I'm fighting with my wife, not that that ever happens, okay? but whenever we are. <laughs> no, whenever we're fighting, you know, what, what do I want it to be? I want, it, I want her to be the problem, Right? Well, why would I want her to be the problem? Because then she has to change. Because then she has to think differently. Because then she has to repent. Because then she has to deny herself. See, the, 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 true transformation happens when you just decide, I'm going to begin to fight the war within. Now, what is happening right now, especially with the younger generation, but we're all given over to this, is we want to fight all of these big issues outside of us Climate change, the economy. It's like, really? You're gonna fix the economy? Your finances are a wreck. Your personal finances are a wreck. This happens all the time. We'll get emails from people. This really happens. This, maybe this will surprise some of you, but we'll get emails from people. Hey, are you giving to this organization, to our church? Have you heard about this ministry? This is a great thing. You guys should start giving to this. How much money are we giving to this? And it's like, who is this person? And then, and, then, and, then I, and then I'll say to one of the staff, hey, can you look up if they give to our church? They give nothing. Amen. It's like, well, oh, that's really interesting. You would like the church to be generous with other people's money. It's like, okay, here's what needs to happen. Like, okay, you, you know, before you want to fix the entire economy, which by the way, the reason we want to focus on that is it distracts us from our own problems. It's like, all right, well, how about you just learn, you know, some of you, some of you still think 401k is a race, okay? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not, okay? You have to Google about it later. But if you're like, if you're like, okay, okay, what I need to do is, is I need to figure out how to save. I need to figure out how to invest. I need to, I need to figure out how to live below my means. I need to figure out how to be a generous person. And I need to get out of all my consumer debt. And I need to do that for like five years. And if you do that for five years, we may allow you to lead a small class on Dave Ramsey's financial piece. Because <laughs> that would be the right time. It's like, well, here's three people. You hopefully won't mess them up too much. Because that's the other problem. If you don't fight the war within, like you start thinking that, it's like, well, why should you start with yourself? Well, the Bible says so, but here's also why. A lot of times you don't know how to fix something and you think you know how to fix something, okay? Well, it's like, well, you don't know how to fix your marriage. You're like, I know how to fix marriages. It's like, your marriage is a mess. Well, why don't you work on your own marriage for five years? Because guess what will happen if you'll mess up? Guess who gets hurt if you mess up in your marriage? You, which is the right person to get hurt. I don't want you to get hurt, but how about you get hurt first? And then you fix all that, then you come out, and then you help all the rest of us. Because then you say, and here's another thing that'll happen if you'll fight the war within. You'll start being really compassionate because you'll be like, you know, you'll realize how hard it is. Have you ever tried to lose 15 pounds? 
Like, have you ever tried? Like, you just really, like maybe, you know, you get older and you realize I don't have the metabolism I used to. And so now I'm going to try to lose 15 pounds. Do you know how hard that is? You, you, you try to lose 15 pounds for a little bit and all of a sudden you're really compassionate toward other people who have weight issues. And you realize, well, this is a little bit more complex. Yeah, I know it's eating and exercise. I get it, but it's really hard. And so it'll make you unbelievably compassionate toward other people. So the first thing he's saying is, okay, you got to realize that the war is within. And then look what he says. He, he says that basically, if you continue on, uh, he says this, uh, verse one, is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So here's what he's saying. The reason that you have conflict with others is that you have cravings within. Okay, that craving is just another word for passion or pleasure or appetite or desire. We can use them all, okay? Now there's, there's different types of cravings, right? There's like, there, there are deviant desires. I won't get into that. Some of you have those, okay? It's like you, man, you like things you wish you did not like. You, you, you have something, you, you long for some things that are completely wrong. But most of us, most of what we desire, most of our cravings are desires that have become demands in our life. You know, it, it's that I want the right thing, but I want it too much. It's that I've, I've taken a good thing and I've made it a God thing. I want marriage too much. I want kids too much. I want to be single income family too much. And he says, what happens is, well, here's a couple things. One, you have to know what your cravings are. And here's the truth. Most people don't know what their cravings are. Yeah, I don't know what you have to do. You journal about it, pray about it. We'll see in a moment. Praying is helpful to kind of understand your cravings. But most people, it's like, this, why do you have the same fights with your spouse all the time? Because either you or she or he, whatever, you don't know what you really want. So you're fighting about something. And then you have to admit to yourself, like after you pray about it, you journal about it, you're like, I just want more attention and affection from you. And then I, you have to wrestle with it because maybe you want too much affection. Maybe, you're, maybe you watch The Notebook too many times, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe affection and attention are too strong, but, but maybe you want it the right amount. Maybe you could just tell him. And maybe there's a few things that he could do. But then it says this, that you desire and you do not have, so you punish, so you murder actually. So here's another principle. If you're, when your pleasures and passions aren't met, you punish people. That's, you know, you, you might punish your kids. I know you don't want to admit that you'd punish your kids. But when they don't act how you want to make you look good, all of a sudden you'll find yourself ignoring them when they want to share something great with you, which is a form of punishment. Or I see this, and I try to equally pick on men and women, but this is particularly a struggle with women. I, I see this all the time. Women who are upset with their husbands, maybe rightly so, because I don't know, because he's not all he could be, I know. And because he doesn't meet all your needs, I know. But we'll see this, you know, someone in community group, some lady, she will passively, aggressively put her husband down in front of other people. Which is a really sophisticated way to publicly punish him because he's not doing something you would like. And when you do that, it's like he feels so embarrassed. And it's like, well, he's not gonna, he's gonna correct you in front of everybody. And you look really foolish. It's just terrible. Well, verse two goes on even on more. It says, you, 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 he says, you desire and you do not have. He says, so you murder. Now, you know, you read this and you read the commentaries and some commentaries go, well, maybe he's like doing that thing Jesus does where like murder in your heart. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe. He said, well, maybe there was actually murder in the church. I mean, <laughs> first century church was crazy, okay? <laughs> People come out a lot. We don't know what happened. But I will say this, and, and, and this is not a political statement. It's actually a pre-political statement, but um, is is... James chapter four, verse two, is the ex explanation for abortion. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. We, we actually believe that abortion is the taking of an innocent, unborn human life. Now, why do people get abortions? Well, it's complex, but it's verse two. You have a desire, and this unborn life, you feel like is going to take that desire from you, so you will kill this unborn life. I don't want another kid. I wanna remain single. Sometimes it's the dad, sometimes it's the boyfriend, sometimes it's the grandfather, God forbid, who, who comes in and says, no, 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 there are desires that I have for your life and for this family. And we need to have these desires happen and for about $500 we can. And so a lot of times we read these verses and we go, they were so primitive. It's like, maybe not. Maybe we're in the same place. So where does he point us to fight the war within? He points us to prayer. Look at here. 
Look at verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you can't contain, so you fight, uh, cannot obtain, so you fight in quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That's prayer. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So he talks about the importance of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is personal communication with the living God. That's what it is. And Jesus, I mean, this is interesting. Remember, there's this, in one of the gospel accounts, there's this demon and, and the disciples can't cast it out and they bring it to Jesus and bring the person to Jesus and Jesus casts the demon out and they say, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, there are certain things that only come out by prayer. It's like, wow. You know, I'm not here to make us all feel super convicted about our prayer lives. We know that if we ask Christians about their prayer lives or we ask them about their evangelism, that they'll feel guilty about both of those immediately, okay? But what is prayer? Prayer is, Tim Keller says, it's, it's, it's wearing your walking shoes and your working boots. That's what he says. He says, when you, when you, when you pray, you gotta put your walking shoes on. You just, yeah, Lord, I love you. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in my life. Lord, I just wanna worship you. Lord, I just wanna share my heart with you. Just wanna tell you my desires. And then there's your, your working boots. And your working boots is, man, I gotta pray for Tim. His marriage is falling apart. I gotta pray for Sally. She's got cancer. And I've gotta intercede. Like, this is gonna be hard. Like, I gotta ask God. Like, I gotta find some scriptures. I gotta claim some promises. Like, I gotta work. Well, he's saying here that there are two things that, that are not happening. He's saying, one, he said, you, you, you have not because you ask not. Now, that's a kind of a scary question. Like, I know God's sovereign, but you're responsible, right? And, and prayer is often the means to accomplish God's ends in the earth. Okay, so you may, you may say, well, and here's the, here's the truth. We, there is a struggle. We'll talk about this at the very end. There's a struggle with unanswered. There's a struggle that Christians have had with unanswered prayer, right? We struggle with, like, God, I've been praying, and I don't feel like there's an answer. But, but more than that, I feel like Christians in America today, we don't struggle with unanswered prayer. We struggle with unoffered prayer <laughs> or unasked for prayer. You may say, well, why don't we pray? Well, there's lots of reasons that we don't pray. One is we don't plan to pray, right? Some of you, yeah, your day is planned, your vacation is planned, your year is planned, your meals are planned, your workout routine is planned, the kid's school is planned. I mean, everything's planned, but not your prayer life. And the truth is, I mean, there's two types of prayer, right? There's prayer that comes out of desperation and there's prayer that comes out of discipline. Most of us only pray out of desperation. It's like, I got the diagnosis. I don't know, I think, we're, I think I'm gonna lose my job. My teenage daughter's breaking my heart. And we, we just pray, it's just like obvious. It's just, it's so natural for us to cry out to God and God honors that. But you cannot live on prayers of desperation only. You have to, you have to live on prayers of discipline. So one is we don't plan to pray. Uh, two is our life is too good, we don't think we need to pray. I mean, that's not to say that some of us aren't going through some really horrible things. But I'm just saying, who needs to pray for their daily bread when Costco's open? Right? I mean, we, we just, life is so good for us, we often don't think we need to pray. Uh, we don't pray because we're prideful, right? I mean, now, a lot of us are too sophisticated to be overtly prideful. I mean, no one likes an overtly prideful person, like, who tells you all their accomplishments and struts and strides, okay? But prayerlessness is the most subtle form of pridefulness. Right, it's like, well, okay, I guess, I guess the sinless son of God needed to constantly pray, but not me, <laughs> right? Um, I think we don't pray because we try to do it alone. It's hard to pray alone. The Lord's prayer, Matthew 6, it wasn't given to an individual. It was given, it's our father, not my father. And sometimes we just need help. Sometimes we just need a little bit more of, hey, we have this Christian couple over for dinner and they're our friends and before we go to dessert or before we play a game or before we watch a movie or before blah, 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 blah. We just say, hey guys, can we pray for a little bit? Maybe 10 or 15 minutes? Are there some needs that I can just pray for you and you can pray for me? We just need more phone calls on the way home from work. Hey, I'm struggling. I, I just, we, we just wanna pray with each other, pray for each other. Now, the second thing he says is, he says, you, you have not because you ask not, and that's, that's convicting. Then he says, you, you, and when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself. So that's selfish prayer. Uh, it's the breaking of the third commandment. So the third commandment is don't take the Lord's name in vain. And most Christians, after like two weeks of being a Christian, they're like, okay, I got it. I won't say Jesus' name when I hit my hand with a hammer. Okay, I got it. <laughs> but it's like, actually, that's, that's a low-level, low-resolution view of misusing God's name. It, what it means is, don't, when it says don't take the name of the Lord in vain, it means don't use God for your own self-advancement. That's, that, that's what that command means. So we often can do, hey, you know, let me just pray. Let me see if God will do everything I want right now. Which prayer is actually more like, let me get my life in aligned with God's word and God's will and God's ways. So, but let me talk about prayer, this last part of prayer real quickly, is this that um, we shouldn't have selfish prayers, but we do need to pray for ourselves. And John Piper, a godly man, pastored for like 40 years in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he, he said he believes in praying in concentric circles. 
In other words, start with the people closest to you who are the neediest. And he would say, and that would be first you. <laughs> like, okay, I, I, you know, I am the most needy person I know. No one sins more than me. No one, I know all of my temptations. I know all of my relationships. I know all of my suffering. I know all of my struggles. So he says, just start there. And sometimes you even have to just start with your selfishness. And you have to, but you have to move through it. And you have to confess it to the Lord. And, and here's the best way to move from selfish prayer to scriptural prayer is you have to add a so that onto your prayers and then add a biblical purpose. Let me explain. So how often are we praying for people's body parts? And I'm not against praying for people's body parts, right? I, 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 I believe that God heals, and I believe if you're struggling in the hospital and you're in pain, you want people praying for you. But we're always praying for Timmy's tummy and Bob's belly and Sally's stomach, right? And it's like, well, what, or, or here's the classic one, grandma's hip, okay? Well, what if we prayed for grandma's hip? It's like, because you get that, hey, grandma's having hip surgery, let's pray for her. It's like, okay, but how about we do this? Let's pray that grandma's has a great hip surgery and makes a full recovery, so that, and then let's add a biblical purpose on, so that she could be an unbelievably present grandmother and invest in the grandkids Amen. and show them what it means to walk with God at the end of her life, Amen. right? So some of you want marriage. It's like, well, you know, who knows why you want marriage? And you may want marriage for all these selfish reasons, and you have to work through that. But then maybe you could say something like, Lord, well, I pray that I get married so that I could experience the companionship that I see in Genesis chapter 2. And so, that I, Lord, I pray that I could be married so that I could more deeply understand the relationship between Christ and the church, and I could be a picture of that. Lord, I pray that I could get married so that I would know that one person who I could uniquely serve. It's like, wow. And by the way, whenever you start praying those prayers, you're like, those are the best prayers. That is why to pray for grandma's hip. Like, that's the best thing. So, okay, first there's the war within. Or, or we could say the war against our own soul, against sin, against selfishness. The second war is the war against the siblings in the church. The war against each other. I'll show you this. If you look at me, at uh, verse, we'll go back to verse one. Okay, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Um, psalm 133, you don't have to go there now. It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. So if, you, if you're ever like, I need to memorize a psalm, memorize that one. It's really short. And it says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's basically this great picture of how awesome the church is when it's functioning rightly, right? Some people have called the church, theologians have called the church the happiest place on earth. I know that's supposed to be Disney, okay? But, uh, but what, it mean, what they mean by that is not chipper and not, you know, shallow, but they mean like, man, this should be the place where it's like, my kids are gonna be loved on and people are gonna fight for my marriage, and people at work don't understand me, and people in my neighborhood don't understand me, and my extended family doesn't understand me, but they get me here. And my life, my life fell apart, and they were there for me. It's like, okay, well, that's the church. But the truth is, the opposite is also true, right? So how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, Psalm 133. The opposite's true. How horrible is it when churches fight and bicker, right? We say all the time here that what a divided nation needs is a unified church. Now, there's lots of types of wars in the church, right? So let me give you some common ones that I've seen over the last 20 years. There's wars among leadership and against leadership. You ever see those? Oh, yeah. It's actually in the Bible. Moses, most humble man ever. That's what it says in the Bible. Miriam and Aaron don't like him. Getting a little bit too much leadership. Getting a little bit too much attention. Speaking a little bit too much. How about John and James? Fighting with each other on who's going to be the best. It's like, man, I'm telling you, how many churches in our city have been derailed and plateaued because the lead pastor and the executive pastor couldn't get along. Oh yeah, this happens all the time. And, and I've seen it, it derails the church, the church is plateaued. And, and so let me just, what do I say about all this? Well, let me tell you a couple things. One, and I'm gonna talk a little, about, a little bit more about this in a few weeks when we talk about elders. I want you to know that we have 12 pastors in our church. Six of them are here full-time, I'm one of those. There's six of us who full-time, thank you very much, we're able to give ourselves fully to the work of the ministry. And I wanna tell you that your staff pastors are kind of like the marriage in the church. If those relationships are going well, everything else flourishes. And we just got away, the six of us, we just got away. Some of you are like, I don't care about this stuff, but I'm just gonna tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, we just got away for three days, and, and, and we do that twice a year, and we pray for each other, and we spend a lot of time together, and we, uh, we visioneer the next six months of the church, and it was so unbelievably encouraging. You know, we, we ended the last night together sitting around a bonfire, and just the six of us. And it was so sweet, because basically everybody wants everybody else to win. It's like, all right, you know, they look at me, and they're like, all right, we want you to preach, preach the word. Just keep doing it. We want you to lead the staff. 
We want you to inspire the elders. Go do it. And then I'm looking at Spencer, and I'm like, man, I want you to go missions and college and go get it. We're looking at Caleb, and we're saying, just expand and enhance all the ministries in our church. And we're looking at Stephen, and we're saying, make the best leadership development thing we've got. We're looking at Donovan, and we're like, lead us in worship. You know, and we're looking at Dave, and we're saying, do everything else. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it's, it's, su- it's just such a joy, because I'm just telling you that that is, not, that is not normal in the church when you feel freed up to do those things. So there's the war among leadership. There's often the war against leadership. Why is that? Well, because the church has to be led. And people don't like all these types. You know, one definition of leadership is taking people places they don't want to go for reasons they don't want to know. <laughs> and the more that I lead, the more I see that that's a true definition, right? Because leaders have to say, we're going here, we're not going here. Leaders have to say no. Leaders have to set direction. Leaders have to set culture so people can buck against leadership. Here's the second thing you see, divisive people, right? Do you know any divisive people? If you do, please don't tell them about our church, please. <laughs> um, we've had a few of them in our church. Thank God, not many. We're almost six years old. A divisive person, the Bible says in Titus 3.10, um, it says, warn a divisive person once and then twice and then have nothing to do with them. Divisive people occasionally show up. Here's how you recognize a divisive person. They've had a bad experience at their last five churches. And you sit with them, you go, okay, hold on. There's been one thing that's been a common denominator over the last five churches that you've been a part of. You, Amen. that's it, Amen. right? And so uh, here's an interesting thing. I had a, a pastor tell me, he was leading a, a great church in Boston. He said, I've never had an unbeliever be divisive in my church. He says, unbeliever shows up, they wanna learn, they're, they're, they're seeking, they got questions. He said, I've never had someone who came to Christ in my church be divisive in my church. They just, they baptize here, born again here, they love our church. He says, every divisive person in my church has been a religious person who came here from a different church with an agenda. This youth group's not like my youth group. Respectfully, who cares? <laughs> That's not how we did small groups. Why did you leave that church? <laughs> but the person who comes to faith in Christ in your church, this youth group's awesome. This is the only youth group I've ever known. So there's divisive people, there's wars against leadership and among leadership. And then there's just divisive topics, right? Now, we talk about divisive topics as they arise in Scripture, but I think one of the reasons churches get divisive is that, that pastors especially, they make, what, mountains out of molehills, maybe you'd say, right? Like everyone, you know, I can't touch on and talk about every issue that comes up in our culture. Because every once in a while someone, are you gonna say something about this? Kyle, you, you see what happened this week? You gonna say something about that? Did you see what happened on Thursday? Are you gonna say something about that? It's like, I'm not a news anchor! I'm not Jimmy Fallon. I'm not a late night TV host. I'm a Bible teacher and a pastor. And every once in a while, something becomes so large that we talk about it. But as a general rule, whether it seems to be something on the right or something on the left or something in the middle, we just, we don't talk about it a lot. We walk through the next portion of scripture and we unite around those things. So here's the question. How do we have unity? It's not easy. Thank God we have it. But how do you have unity? I mean, there's lots of you here. You know, we do this four times. Like, there's lots of people here. How do we have unity? Well, you have, to, you have to know the difference between biblical truth, personal conviction, and personal preference. These are so helpful. I mean, this is so freeing. And take this to your next church if you, you know, ever have to leave our church. This is so helpful. Biblical truth is what the Bible clearly teaches. Personal conviction is how you and your family are trying to apply that truth. Now, here's the thing about personal convictions. Faithful Christians can apply the same text differently to their lives and still remain faithful. And personal preference is what you like. It's like your favorite flavor of ice cream. It's like what you choose when there are multiple good options. So let's, let's do this once or twice. You'll see how it works. Biblical command, do not get drunk, right? There's no Christian who can go, getting drunk's okay. Nope, we got biblical command. Personal conviction may be a bunch of different things. Personal conviction might be, well, I'm not gonna drink because of X, Y, and Z. My personality, my temperament, my dad, blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I, the old saying is, uh, hey, I, I won't have to take the last drink if I never take the first drink. Okay, fair enough. Other people go, well, I'm gonna drink, but I'm gonna drink, not gonna get drunk, and I'm only gonna drink at social events, and I'm only gonna have two drinks, and blah, 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 okay. I'm only gonna drink on the weekends, or I'm not gonna drink when I travel alone. Okay, whatever it is. Uh, okay, great, another personal conviction that came out of a biblical truth. Personal preference, I like IPAs. <laughs> personal preference, I prefer red wine over white wine. Do you see the difference? Okay, let's say, uh, biblical command, educate your children in the Lord. Every parent is ultimately responsible for the education of their children. 
biblical command, biblical truth. Personal conviction, homeschool, private school, charter school, public school, magnet school, so many options. University model. It's like, okay, uh, personal preference. I, I prefer the classical conversations and I like all of the memorization. Okay, good. Biblical truth. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in your heart to God. Personal conviction. Uh, I would prefer that the songs we sing, I could see how they tie back to scripture. Great. Personal preference. I like the organ. I like how Hillsong does that song. And how many churches, right, there's been some goofy deacon or someone on a committee or somebody in there, and they had a personal preference, and that's all it was. It wasn't even a personal conviction, and they elevated it to biblical truth. Or what happens with divisive things is that you try to take your personal conviction about alcohol and make it someone else's biblical truth. Or your personal conviction about education and make it someone else's biblical truth. So we're just gonna be a church, we just focus on the big biblical truths and we, let, we trust the Christian conscience and the Holy Spirit to lead you to personally have personal convictions and apply it to your life. Okay, next we'll see not just the war within, not just the war with each other, but the war against the world. This is in verse four. You adulterous people, here it is, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I don't think I have to say it, but I'll say it one more time. When it says don't love the world or don't be friends with the world, it's not talking about the people of the world. It's talking about the value system and the ideas of the world. God loved the world and he gave his only son. Um, But what is worldliness? Worldliness is any value system uh, or worldview that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness, it's hard to describe. I mean, here's a couple things you can think of like, you know, because you may want to ask this question, are you worldly? You know, which is a terrible thing to maybe admit to yourself that you might be worldly. But what you're worldly if, if you emphasize the flesh over the spirit. Like a worldly person is no longer sensitive to God's word, to God's way, to God's will, to God's voice in their life. Um, it, it, it's, the worldly person becomes very hedonistic. Immediate, cheap pleasure. That's the world. Uh, it's not just flesh over spirit. It tends to be um, the uh, temporary over the eternal. I'm just focused on right now. I don't think about the next life. I don't think about final judgment. I don't think about heaven. I don't think about eternity. I don't think about the future. And it tends to be the external over the internal. I care so much about how I look. I care so much about how I appear. I care so much about the outside, and I don't care at all about what's going on on the inside. And so there's this worldliness. Now, uh, I want to talk just for a few minutes about what does it mean to be friends with the world, okay? So he says there's two warnings here not to be friends with the world. Now, we can. Now what is a friend? Now, I told you last week that friends are people who share secrets with each other. That's, that's a good definition of friendship. But uh, another definition of friendship is what C.S. Lewis says. He says that a friend is somebody, he said, you know you've discovered a friend when you have that moment and you meet someone, you go, wow, I thought I was the only one. I can't believe you like this too. And, and that a friend is someone who you have so much in common with, which is why you can't be friends with the world. Okay? You can be acquaintances with the world. There, there's lots of different warnings in scripture, right? Like I won't go through all of these, but there's James 1.27 says, don't be spotted by the world or be blemished by the world. What that means is that there are, what happens is if you get too close to the world, for some of you, you're mostly Christian except for a certain element or dimension of your life. You're mostly Christian except for how you deal with money. You're mostly Christian except for how you parent, right? Uh, then he says, okay, you're spotted, then you can become friends with the world. Then he says, don't, later John says, don't love the world. And then Romans, Paul in Romans 12, he says, don't be conformed to the world. Do you see kind of the pattern? We get spotted, we become friends. We love, we get conformed. I'll tell you a story, I heard about this. And I only talk about this guy because he's a very public figure and it was a very public fall. But I don't know if you've ever heard of Carl Lentz. Carl Lentz, he was, uh, during a certain season, he was one of the most famous pastors in America. Uh, fairly young guy, he pastored uh, Hillsong, New York City. What really made him famous is he ended up being really good friends with and he ended up discipling Justin Bieber. Okay, so we're talking super famous pastor guy. A big church right in the heart of downtown New York City. And then he just had a, you know, completely, you know, shipwrecked his faith and shipwrecked his life. And, uh, you know, adultery and all this other kind of stuff. And it all came out and it was just a big scandal and just, oh, it's terrible. But what's interesting is in November, this is kind of weird how this happened, I ended up being at an event with a bunch of pastors and I ended up, we're going to dinner and I'm sitting next to a pastor who's uh, pastors in New York City. And I just said to him, I didn't know what he was going to say back. I just said, hey, have you, did you know Carl Lentz? He said, did I know Carl? I discipled him. I said, whoa. 
He says, oh, yeah, he said, Carl, he said, Carl, big heart for God. He said, Carl, unique communicator to the people of New York City. He said, Carl, he said, very gifted evangelist. He said, I'll tell you what happened with Carl. And I never forgot this. I've actually, he told me this in November. I've been thinking about this for six months, like probably once a week. He said, what happened with Carl, with the fame, with the money, with the celebrity culture, okay, with all of that, he was on The View, you know, all that kind of stuff, he, with all that kind of press. He said, what happened with Carl is he ended up living in a place he should have only visited. And this pastor from New York City, he said, Kyle, he said, I've been on a private plane one time. <laughs> he said, I liked it too much. He said, Carl flew private all the time. He ended up living in a place he should have only visited. Now, sometimes this, this is true. Sometimes there are certain places you can't even visit. Now, I knew a guy, and this wasn't in our church, and he went to Thailand on a mission trip, and he came back, and he goes, I'm never going to Thailand again. He said, I didn't do anything I shouldn't have done. You know, I didn't disqualify myself. He said, but way too much temptation in Thailand. Too many young women, too many massage parlors, prostitutions, way too normalized, and I'm way too far from home. Wow, that's actually a sign of strength. There's certain places I can't even visit. That's the danger of being conformed. So then you have to ask, well, how do you interact with the world? And that's not easy to do, right? How do you interact with the world? It's like, well, oh, it's hard. Christians have tried to wrestle with this for a long time. So let me tell you what we said. Let me give you them real quick. Uh, you can't Christianize. Christianize is create a subculture, right? Eat all your meals at Chick-fil-A. I'm just kidding. Um, no, but like I, I, the other day I was, I was I, so I went to the family, remember the family Christian bookstore? Uh, some of you remember this. I, I was a brand new Christian. I go to the family Christian bookstore. I'm like, this is great. I get my Bible, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, everyone who works here is a Christian. This is great. Then I go up to, to, to pay. And, and there's a jar of mints, and I grab a mint, and it says testaments. I'm like, do we need a Christian mint? <laughs> What's wrong with regular mints? But it's, it's this whole kind of subculture. People Christianize because they're afraid. It's, it, you know, it's the world's scary. It's scary to be around people who believe differently than you. People are scared that their kids are gonna be, you know, you gotta protect your kids, I get all that. But people Christianize. Second, people compromise. That's a theologically mainline liberal churches. The heart behind that usually is compassion. We want to remove the stumbling blocks, but what they do is they remove the gospel. There's no longer, we, talk, we don't talk about hell, we don't talk about the cross, we don't talk about the need for grace, we don't talk about repentance, we don't talk about truth. This is why there's not, last I checked, one theologically liberal denomination in the world that's growing. Third, there's criticize, right? That's the indie fundy churches. You've been part of those, some of you have. Uh, they put the fun in fundamentalism, okay? Um, and uh, what, what, they, what they tend to, you're like, man, they, they tend to talk a lot about what the world does wrong and a lot about what the church does right. And they talk a lot about what other people need to repent of, and they don't talk a lot about what they need to repent of. Then there's others of us who compartmentalize our faith. Compartmentalize our faith, this is what David Wells said. David Wells has studied Christians and culture for like 40 years. He said the average American Christian finds their faith privately compelling but publicly irrelevant. Oh, your Bible study in the morning and your devotional and maybe this, you know, maybe your community group, I mean, maybe your podcast. It is so privately compelling. It's doing something, but like publicly irrelevant. You're not telling anyone. No one except for Jesus knows you're a Christian. <laughs> you're not at work. It's like, okay, well then here's what we have to do. We have to be a counterculture. That's the only one that works. It's a city within a city. It's why we call ourselves Two Cities Church. We call ourselves Two Cities Church because Winston-Salem were two cities that came together and the church is supposed to be a city within the city. We're supposed to be an attractive alternative. We're supposed to be different and distinct. The only way we're gonna make a difference is if we are different. Okay, let's show, show me the, I'll show you the final war. It's the war against God. If you look at me at verse, we'll go back to verse four. Here's what it says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? <clears throat> Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, twice we're told we're enemies of God if we're friends of the world. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he may dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a reminder that all of your sin is not just horizontal, it's vertical, right? Um, this is why there's no such thing as private sin. There's no such thing as personal sin. And some of you think sometimes, well, I'm only hurting myself. It's like, well, that's not true. Because if you hurt yourself, then you become a different person. Sin changes and bends you and transforms you into something worse. And then you have to interact with everybody. So, so that's not good for them. So we know that sin doesn't just affect you, but sin is always vertical. It's always giving God half a peace sign. That's what sin is. Sin is, as one person said, it's cosmic treason. 
Sin is going against your creator who designed you to live a certain way. And so then we're told that God is jealous, right? And, and this is, Oprah got all mad about this. I don't know if you know about this. The reason that Oprah left the church is she said she couldn't worship a jealous God. She said, uh, you know, it's, he sounds like an emotional teenager, which is clever. It's clever to say. But it's not saying that God is jealous of us. He's jealous for us, right? God's not looking down going, I wish I was finite. I wish I was sinful. I wish I could only be at one place in one time. You know, it's like, no, he's not doing that. He's jealous for us. He wants the best for us. That's why we're called, he uses the language of being adulterous. Now, why? Well, God does that, right? Which he uses sexual language sometimes to get his point across and shock us and wake us up. What is adultery? Well, I won't get into detail here, but adultery is when you find in somebody else what you're only supposed to find in your spouse. It's when you do things with somebody else that you're only supposed to do with your spouse. And so what he says here is he says, God opposes the proud. You see that? But gives grace to the humble. Opposes, that verse shows up three times in scripture. That, that phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It means that God is actively against prideful people. It's like, I don't want God to be actively against me. So he says, humble yourselves. That's verse 10. If you look at verse 10, it says, humble yourselves. Now, you have two options for your life, humility or humiliation. I would encourage you to choose humility. <laughs> humility is private. Like, you can humble yourselves right now. You can go home and humble yourself before your spouse or your kids. You, you can humble yourself in your prayer closet before God. And the great thing about humility is you can do it. It's quiet. No one even needs to know. But if you will not, hear me say this, if you will not humble yourself, God will humiliate you. And that will not be fun. And that will be public. The only thing harder than humbling yourself and confessing is getting caught and being humiliated. And so what he says is God gives more grace. Here's what this means. Stop thinking about your future apart from God's grace. As soon as I start saying some of this, you're like, I gotta go home and you don't know how my wife is. You don't know how my husband is. Kyle, you don't know my job. Like, you don't know my kids. My kids are hard on me. Like, you don't know my work life. It's hard. You don't know my suffering, which is constant. It's like, well, let's not think about the future apart from God's grace. He tells us what we need to do. Here's where we'll close. Here's what he says. He, he tells us to do a bunch of things, but we'll hit them quickly. He says, submit to God. Okay, no one likes that word. It's verse seven. It's why every time I teach on submission and marriage, it's like, all right, we're cutting a song and the sermon's gonna be 15 minutes longer because no one likes the word submission. Submission is a military term that says, get in your proper rank, order, and file. It means see yourself rightly. Humility is not thinking less of, of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. He says, he says, I want you to submit to God. Then he says, resist the devil. That means the devil can be resisted. He is a defeated and defanged foe who we can fight. And then he says this, draw near to God. Now that's interesting. He doesn't say read your Bible. He doesn't say pray. He doesn't say come to church. He doesn't say sing songs because you can do those and not draw near to God. My fear is that many of you have settled for spiritual activity instead of spiritual intimacy. Oh, you'll read your Bible. Oh, you'll memorize scripture. Oh, here's a devotional. Oh, you'll go to group. And we settle for spiritual activity instead of spiritual intimacy. Now, this is a great promise. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's like, what? Awesome. It doesn't say he'll think about it. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that we can draw near to God in confidence because of Christ. It's like, have you sinned grievously this week? Draw near to God. That's what it's saying. Like, have you messed up royally? Draw near to God. Are you suffering? Draw near to God. Do you have lots of doubts and questions? Draw near to God. It says, and he will draw near to you. And then it says something interesting. If you look at the next verses, it says, weep and mourn. <laughs> You're like, what? He basically, after it says, draw near to God, it says, be sad and sorrowful. It's like, why? It's like, well, because when you draw near to God, you see how holy he is and you see how sinful you are. That's just what happens. That, that when you become a Christian, you realize those two things for the first time. God is holy, I am sinful. And the cross is what connects those two things. That's how a sinful human can have a relationship with the holy God is because what Christ has done. But guess what happens as you get older? You read your Bible more, you're like, oh man, he's even more awesome than I thought God is. There's even, there, I, there, he's got even more character and he's got even more you know, great works and he's even more glorious than I thought. And then you, then you get married and then you make some money and then you lose some money and then you have some kids and then you suffer. And then you realize like 15 years after you're a Christian, you're like, I'm a worse sinner than I thought on the day I came to Christ. Well, that's the gospel gap. The gospel gap is the gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness that Christ on the cross bridges. 
And so for some of you, listen, submit to God means give your life to Christ because you can't draw near to God without Christ. So we submit to God. That's the beginning of salvation. How someone enters the kingdom of God is they enter the kingdom of God on their knees. They say, Lord, I submit. I surrender. You're Lord. I'm going to give you my entire life. For, for others of you, listen, you have got to start fighting. I, I don't know what sin it is. It's whatever sin came to your mind. It's whatever sin you don't want to deal with. And you've got to say, I have got to fight, and you can't fight alone. And I've got to fight the fight of faith. And for others of you, look, you've been fighting with somebody. You know, we talk about quarreling. You know who it is. You need to be reconciled. Now, how do you reconcile to somebody? It's hard. But here's what you do, because I know you think it's mostly their fault, right? It's always like 90% their fault, yeah. Here's what you do. You go and you tell them the 10% things you did wrong. You just go, listen, I... Go to the person you don't have a great relationship with and tell them the last stupid, sinful thing you did. See if that doesn't help the relationship. For others of you, you just need to start praying. You have not been praying, or for some reason, you stopped praying. Let me tell you a prayer God loves to answer. God, I'd like to do the right thing. Will you help me? Any, any parent knows that's a prayer they would love to answer. Could you imagine a world in which your son or daughter came to you and said, look, I have messed up. I would like to do the right thing now. Will you help me? The answer is yes, I will. Now, some of you have stopped praying for certain things because you, you haven't had your prayers answered. And obviously that happens. It's really hard on people, right? Because sometimes you're like, I didn't pray for something and it happened, so maybe I don't need to pray. And other times I prayed for it and it didn't happen. I don't know if you've ever heard of a super bloom. But I want to show you a picture of Desert Valley in California. This is a picture of the desert. And most deserts, they don't get any rain. Maybe they get an inch or two a year. They get almost no rain, and so there's no life in a desert. But they found this phenomenon called a super bloom. And a super bloom is when a desert hasn't had rain for years. And all of a sudden, in a day or two, it gets two or three years of rain all at once. I want to show you the same picture of that desert after a super bloom. Show them the ground picture of it. Whenever a super bloom happens, people from all over, especially kids, they come to play in it. I'm asking you to keep praying for whatever you've been praying for because I think there's a potential for a spiritual super bloom. Do you know what revival is? Revival is the acceleration of the work of God in a certain time and in a certain place. It's when God saves 100 students at Wake Forest University in one year. It's when the amount of people who would come to Christ in Winston-Salem in a decade come in one month. Amen. It's when sins that have been plaguing you and your family for generations are finally broken. Amen. So let's stop fighting with each other. Let's start praying for each other. And let's start hoping for a spiritual super bloom. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And we pray that prayer. What an awesome prayer, Lord. I want to do the right thing. Will you help me? Lord, would you give us that heart? That's when, when marriages change is when at least one, hopefully both spouses, say that to the Lord. When sin starts to really be repented of is when somebody says, I'd like to do the right thing. Lord, would you help me? Lord, help us to fight the war within. Help us to submit to you, Lord, and help us to draw near. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.